Hey everyone, if you're a fan of the show, please head over to MikeyOp.com and click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support us, and it's free. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com. Thanks. Hi, I'm Mike Oppenheim, and you're listening to Coffin Talk, Exit Interviews with the Living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. With me today is an old friend, Alex. Alex, welcome to the show. How's it going? All right. Thank you. Cool. Um, And I'm really excited to interview, actually, because I have you labeled as a certain philosophical view on uh, life and death, and I'm curious to see if you ever mention it or say it or how dead wrong I am, because... As our listeners probably know, I'm often dead wrong. So, um, but we'll get there in whatever way we get there. And I always start with one basic series of questions, which is just: Could you let us know where you grew up, uh, how old you are, and then what generation you think you belong to? All right. Um, I grew up in Indiana. I'm uh, 40, and I'm right on the cusp of uh, you know, of Generation X, uh, which is just a cooler label than millennials. So I, I want to go with that one. Awesome. That would be pretty much my answer. Um, cool. So that's just to situate you with our audience who doesn't know you and so they can kind of get an idea. And then uh, the next most basic question I usually ask, but actually haven't always asked, is uh, what do you think happens when you die? I, I think you just dissipate. Um, I, uh, I think the idea of... Um, any part of our personality persisting is kind of incoherent. <laughs> I, I, in my head, I, I call that idea the, the soul midden, the idea that like there's, there's just a little bit left of you and it, it piles up somewhere. Um, I, I like, it, we can describe it in, a gen, in an abstract sense, but when you try and think of what that would actually mean, like what is the core of you? Um, how much of your memories you have to retain, or is it just the, your reflexes and the way you, you respond to things? I don't know. I, I just don't think the idea of, uh, consciousness without a body makes sense. Cool. I like that. And, uh, let me ask you then a kind of related question. Have you ever had a consciousness out of body experience, uh, whether it's dreaming, awake, anything? Um, not like the classic out of body experience where you, you know, there, there are, all those descriptions of like, uh, I think a rushing sound is one of the stages or tutorials on how to try and make it happen. Um, but the sounds cool. I mean, astral projection would be amazing. I really like the idea of, uh, seeing things from above kind of floating around like a ghost. Um, but no experiences like that, no dreams like that really either. Cool. Um, yeah. And a dream would be different and I would approach it with a different like set of questions, but, um, have you, uh, I guess kind of on the same subject, as far as like the word supernatural goes, have you ever had any experience that felt or seemed or thought you thought was supernatural? Oh man, I feel like there, I feel like there might've been things I couldn't explain when I was younger. Um, although maybe I was just leaving the the door open a little bit, um, for things like the way you dream of people who have, uh, who you used to know who have died. Like I, I had a lot of dreams about my grandfather for, I don't know, 10 years after he died, uh, not constantly, but he'd, he'd just show up and it's hard not to, not to feel like that was a real presence. So, um, I used to, I think that must be the, the thing I remember leaving the, the door open a crack for is the idea that maybe there is, um, uh, something to the, the sense of being visited. I, 
I think the way I'd describe that now is that um, you are always only interacting with your mental representation of a person. And so even after the person is gone, the mental representation of them that you've built up uh, is, is still there and it can feel real because it's, it's as real as they ever were. Wow. There's 500 threads I want to pull on with that. And I'm going to try to pick the one I think is most relevant to our discussion. Um, so would you extend that one step further then and just say reality is almost entirely that? Yeah. Um, the, the thing that I, I saw this thing online once and it's like the image that um, it, it was the, the apple falling on Newton's head, uh, at least for this little concept uh, for me. Uh, it was video of a, a drone. Some I think some students at MIT had made that was one of those little quadrotor things. Um, and it was, they, they were showing the way it can go into a building and then map the building as it's looking around. And so it was like, it flew in uh, and it, you know, it's just fog of war everywhere. It doesn't really know what's going on in the building. And as it hovers around and scans uh, on the video, it showed its representation of the world getting filled in. Um, and that idea of the surface of the world being something that you, you paint by observing it uh, stuck with me. That's very cool. I like that. Um, I'm jumping topics, but it's because I'm going to come back because I want to meet this with more information about you. So uh, were you raised with any form of religion? Um, no. Uh, my parents um, are, are not religious. I did go to a Catholic school for uh, two years, for like uh, kindergarten and first grade, uh, which is just kind of funny in retrospect um, because you're very impressionable at that age. I got, uh, got really into it for, for a little while. Um, and, um, my parents tried to give me space for that. Like when I asked for a little statue of Jesus, they gave me a little statue of Jesus. Um, and, but also I know the way parent child interactions work. So I, I'm sure that they were, uh, well, to come at this from the other side, the thing that I remember, uh, breaking the spell was the idea of original sin. And I was just like, well, that's not fair. That can't be right. Can you explain that concept real quick? Just like how it was brought up to you. Keep in mind that I was not raised with any religion. Uh, that you're that you're born guilty. Yeah, I just don't think you can be guilty for anything you didn't have control over. Um, and I, I don't think it's that like my uh, insightful six-year-old mind saw through the theology of it. I, I think that probably uh, as, as I was asking my my parents to explain these these things I'd heard about, uh, that they, they probably um, did not give it the hard sell. They were probably like, so here's, here's what the Catholics are saying. And uh, from there, it was easy for the six-year-old to be like, I don't know about that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That's great. Well, so I was asking these series of questions, and I'm still leading up to a different one uh, that dovetails into the whole reality mapping with the drone and all that. Um, so do you remember at any stage, either recently, a long time ago, as a kid, wishing – this is after you you broke away from the brief – flirtation with Catholicism, as I'll call it. Um, do you, do you recall any periods where you wished you believed in something stronger or greater? I can't remember periods where I, where I wished I did. I think that probably I had the same underlying desire for, for structure and meaning. Uh, and I just, that wasn't the first thing I grasped for. And, and as I think back, I also have to say that there, there were times when I, uh, 
earlier I said that I left the door open a crack. Um, there are definitely times where I opened the door a little wider. Like uh, when we were in college and I was uh, getting into to meditation and reading all these, uh, you know, uh, Eastern spirit spirituality books. Um, you know, I, I, I left, I left myself open to the idea that uh, some of these very abstract concepts they were talking about were, uh, were real in some sense, you know, in, in some, I guess the way I define it is uh, something like Kundalini. Um, like, uh, let me go back one step further. Uh, so in, in martial arts, a lot of the stuff they say about chi uh, sounds very woo-woo, but if you think about what they're actually trying to teach you with it, it's just like, oh, this is just, uh, they, they drew the circle around a different set of concepts than the way you would say this uh, in our symbolic system. Uh, but like they're, here they're really just talking about physical energy, or here they're talking about general health. And uh, it's, you don't actually have to believe in like being made out of energy in the sense of like, like that Wilford Brimley movie, The Coon. Um, it, you can just be, you can just be uh, the equivalent of the way uh, different cultures define the border between blue, blue and green differently, you know, colors that, yeah. Um, so something like Kundalini, I guess when I say that I was open to that a little bit, uh, my, on the one hand, I could think like, okay, so this is a totally abstract, uh, this is like a metaphor for what you're supposed to be feeling as you, you do these meditations. But what I left the door open for was that there was like a whole lot of reality that we hadn't figured out scientifically yet, but like maybe some of the things they were describing would or could eventually be shown to have some some physical basis. So, so I guess that's not leaving the door open. That that's still being very materialistic. Well, yeah, but I think you're being fair and you're definitely being balanced. I mean, my main purpose in doing this is just to learn about other people, and then I kind of apply it to myself. But also, I think people, some people, learn about themselves as they go. And and so far, you're, everything's adding up. There's nothing sounding weird to me. Um, and the reason I asked the somewhat leading question of "Have you ever wished?" and stuff was that I'm trying to see how your views would affect your morality. So I'm going to uh, speak out of turn and just say that you are a very integrity driven person. I've known you uh, more than I think 20 years. And uh, I would say almost to a fault, your integrity is very high. Um, meaning in this world of cutthroat uh, behavior, sometimes having integrity can actually uh, not help you, especially on the career path. So my question for you would be, since you've stated that you do think when you die, it just all goes away. Um, and whether or not you're composed of energy or not, isn't relevant to that. That would have nothing to do with it. Um, how does that construct then your moral behavior? I guess that's, uh, that's a common, uh, vector on which, uh, moral behavior is shaped. Uh, like some people's behavior is very driven by their expectation of what happens after they die. I I don't know what keeps me moral on the on the small individual level. I, I think people are have a lot of built-in systems for empathy, and uh, I do frame things mostly as like how is this affecting other people. And then when I zoom way out to like the the meaning of it all, I, I put a little bit of meaning in like the long-term consequences of of this short life. Um, like, 
I think a lot about the Fermi paradox, the, the idea that um, there's, there's some hurdle that uh, intelligent civilizations can't get over most of the time. And that's actually one of the, the points I, I hit. Like that, that's uh, one of the, the bedrock uh, assumptions I have when I'm thinking about the morality of something. Uh, I actually feel a little morally iffy about um, doing things that distract humans from the most important parts of living. Like, um, I think that entertainment is important and good both as recreation and as culture and communication. Um, but I, I think about some incredibly smart people I know who put all of their mental horsepower into, um, into League of Legends and Magic the Gathering. And if, if those outlets were not available to them, they'd be curing diseases. Or, or, or carving out just one little further niche in, in the corpus of mathematics. You know, they, they'd be contributing. They, they, have a, they have the power to make a contribution to the long-term project of humanity. And we've sidetracked them. Well, so you've brought this up a few different times with different phrasings, but the trajectory of humanity, this, this concept of humanity as an ongoing thing that is much longer and bigger than ourselves— why on earth would you be dedicated to that? What do you see in it? What do you like about it? And it's not even just humanity. Like I, I just intrinsically feel like I'd rather the universe have life on earth than not. Um, so I, I, I'd rather humans survive than not. Um, I'd rather we spread out and, and more lives are experienced on, on more planets someday. Uh, but feeling that, I'd still want like animals to be on Earth. I guess just because it seems rare and precious, like, uh, and, and maybe this is just a weird limit I hit because um, without <laughs> without some of the more traditional uh, mo uh, moral frameworks, uh, I just kept zooming out until I'm like, well, I guess we are just, you know, in a in a meaningless speck of dust in a big universe. Uh, but I kind of like the way things are going here, and I'd like it to continue. So I love what you're saying, and uh, I'm going to go kind of dark here. Your philosophy as described so far, and we're like uh, 16 or 17 minutes into this podcast, so far as described, I could see it as leading to being like one of the most uplifting positivism approaches to life. I could also see it as the most dark, nihilistic, empty, you know, thing. So does it hit you on both of those sides? Does it hit full extremes? Does it never hit either? Like, well, how does this affect you in your, in your mental health? Well, I mean, w would you describe me as more upbeat or nihilistic? Well, okay. I mean, obviously I know you very well. Uh, <laughs> and remember at the beginning when I said I was going to see if you would use the word and I already used it nihilistic, but yeah, to me, nihilism has a very negative connotation from how I learned it. But the older I get, it's much less negative. It's not even negative. It's just a word to describe a belief in nothing to me. So to you, is that what it means? Uh, yeah. I'm, a, I'm about to start talking about existentialism. And both nihilism and existentialism are words that I, I haven't done the homework to really uh, define them precisely. I, I think that starting from the assumption that there's not an intrinsic meaning to anything, my understanding of what a lot of existentialists were getting at that we 
they're like, that's right, uh, but don't freak out. You just have to make your own meaning. And so I, I think my my zoomed out, I just want life to continue uh, perspective is, is one way that I make meaning. And then on the the local this lifetime level, uh, I, I think there are a lot of other ways I make meaning just about like the way I want my life to affect the world around me. Yeah, and well, you brought up um, different things earlier, but for some reason I got like the idea that I should ask you about your relationship to pets because you talked about how you would still like to see animals on Earth. So we talked about consciousness of humans. First of all, do you, that consciousness, which is awareness, do you think animals have consciousness? Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't feel like I have a complete picture of this. There's, uh, but but I, I do feel pretty strongly that it's all a continuum. It's, it's not like there's one point at which you become conscious. Uh, I think you, I think lots of creatures have an awareness of the world around them. And then some of them also have a sense of themselves in the world. And when I sit out in nature and my mind gets really quiet and I'm just kind of, I'm not thinking about myself. I'm not thinking about the past or the future. I'm just hearing things and looking at things and, and taking it all in. Um, that's, pretty much what I imagine animal consciousness to be like. Um, like they're, they're aware. They, they see the world around them and they interact with it. But um, all of this metacognition uh, about our, ourselves, I, I think that's uh, a primate thing. And when you say primate, just because I have to ask, so you do think maybe like monkeys and orangutans and stuff have it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, just all to different degrees. And I, and, I, and I think a few other animals, you know, show show signs of, of being social and probably having a, a richer inner life than we realize at first. So do you have any sort of like hierarchical systems of ethics, meaning like it's okay to eat this animal because it's less conscious than this one, or it's okay to murder this? I, mean, I know I'm kidding around, but uh, how do you feel about life and death with animals and humans? I, I do feel like uh, my current approach to the eating meat is not, uh, not fully hammered out ethically. Um, I think a lot of people have that feeling where it's like, yeah, we know this isn't right, but we're not putting in the work to fix it right now. Um, as far as like the continuum, I, I generally don't like the the idea that this is this is weird. Like, I don't think that primates deserve less uh, less care than humans, um, but I also think we're going to experiment on them anyway. Um, I like, I think it's a really dark thing, but I don't, I don't want to excuse it away uh, by, by acting like, well, it doesn't really count. They're not really suffering. Like I, I don't, that's bullshit. I, uh, however, I do myself do that at some level down the food chain. Um, like when I found out that fish don't have, uh, they don't have limbic systems, basically like they, they can't, they can't experience fear and panic the way we do. Uh, so it's easy to write off their reactions as more reflexive than like, you know, the, instead of anthropomorphizing them and, and thinking about the way we'd feel trying to trying to swim away quickly. Uh, but that's, that's the same game people are playing when they excuse uh, killing chimpanzees. So I've just drawn the line somewhere else. Well, and then also by that theory, I've never thought about this before, but along that same line, then couldn't we just like snap the limbic system of felons and then kill them? Like, would that somehow make it better? 
Um, it's interesting. I've never thought about that before uh, from that angle because I do. I, I was a strict vegetarian for a while, and then I was a fish only, and I did. I bought the whole uh, Kurt Cobain fish don't feel pain thing, and uh, uh, he was joking, but I'm being serious. And uh, so I asked you about animals, and then I kind of want to ask you what is meaningful to you that is like intrinsic to being a human. Um, okay, I want to think about that question, but my mind is preoccupied with the fact that you just mentioned Kurt Cobain and I'm really excited about an idea and this is my chance to spread it around a little bit. Um, the 27 club is a toxic meme. And I, I think we should start talking about, can you explain what it is real quick, just for our wide audience? Oh, it, oh it's all these, all these rock stars that partied hard and, and died at the age of 27. Um, and to every idiot kid, uh, that's kind of appealing or to a lot of them. Yeah, and I get it. I totally get it. I uh, I don't think I drew a line at 27, but still that idea of of uh, burning brightly, and and you didn't have a plan for your 40s anyway, so it doesn't feel like like there's big downside there. Yeah, so a lot of people feel that way for a while. Uh, few of them drive off the road because of it, and you know a few people end up uh, screwing up or ending their lives. Uh, who wouldn't have if this idea wasn't in the culture. And so I, I think we should start talking about the 28 club. Uh, we should talk about uh, artists and performers who did their best work after 27. That's a really great idea. And I like this. This is totally apropos for this podcast. Um, it's about the meaning of death is my joke, but you know how our concept of death shapes the way we live. And so that actually is a really cool tangent that wasn't a tangent in my opinion. And uh it kind of reminded me that we have a mutual friend from college who we were not close to, but we did visit after college and knew. And I saw on Facebook the other day, he posted uh, either three or five years without any uh, booze or Coke. And I was totally shocked because I thought it was a special that he was willing to admit on, you know, social media of all social media, Facebook, that he had a cocaine and alcohol problem. But then B, it was like shocking because I knew him and I knew him well. And I was, it was actually kind of like your thing about people who play too much card magic, the gathering and, instead of inventing, you know, I was just thinking, wow, he spent that many years doing that, you know? So do you, you don't judge by the way I hear it, but I just want to ask it this way. Do you judge people for how they live their lives? Uh, I guess I judge some people, certainly. Uh, I don't judge any of the people we've been talking about here. Um, my friends who, uh, who I just, uh, on the, on the civilization scale, I'm like, man, it's a shame it's a shame they're having so much fun. Uh, they could be working instead. Uh, that's I know that's my moral judgment, or I don't know if it's even moral. That's that's the way I feel about it. But I don't judge them the way I judge someone who I feel is screwing up. Um, you know, someone who's uh, spreading really hateful rhetoric online. Like that's that's pissing in the pool, and that those people I judge. But uh, I don't know what, what that division is, where I think both things have negative externalities, but I think that some of them are, are sins and some aren't. Well, and it's interesting because you said people who do that online, and to me that's like an action you're judging, which isn't really like the way they live their life, you know, because the way you live your life is to me more like the people who burn out at 27. Like, uh, But anyway, I, that was a great answer. I don't need to actually uh, get more from you. I, I do have the weirdest question to kind of end the podcast on with you. Um, and then of course, if you have anything you want to add, you, you know, the floor is yours, but, um, 
because you were so interesting to me as far as explaining that you don't believe in anything beyond this existence, but you do kind of like the continuum, but you don't even think that that is necessarily what you have. You know, you're basically, to me, you said you have free will and you can do whatever you want with it in this realm of existence. So I'm curious, what would you do if a good friend called you up, like a very good friend, okay, someone you're very close to, and they said, hey, I don't know what to do. I, I have lost all my faith in the meaning of life. I used to think that there was purpose and blah, blah, blah. I now see nothing. I just think when I die, my brain, they basically say back to you what you believe. And they say, I'm at, I'm, I don't know how I can go on living. I'm, I'm literally like sitting here with a bottle of pills. What would you tell them? Am I, am I trying to give their life meaning or am I trying to talk them out of suicide? I don't think I'm a good person to call for either of those. I agree. And that's what I want to hear. That's why I thought it would be a great question to ask you. I'm curious because you're an honest, integrity-driven person. So I'm curious what you would do. If a friend was struggling with meaning over a long time period, um, I, I would engage with them on that continuously and, and try and figure out what meaning works for them. Um, and I, cause I think that can be a very individual thing. Um, and, and once you find it, it's as real as anybody else's meaning. I actually, I'm really afraid of ever being in the situation where uh, I'm trying to talk someone out of out of suicide uh, because, I mean, I've thought about this before. I've thought about people I know who are depressed and uh, I, I just don't, I don't think there's an honest way I can have that conversation. Um, I would miss them. I don't want them to go. Uh, but I feel uh, personally almost belligerent about my right to end my life if I, if I so choose. I truly respect that answer. I'm really glad I asked you that question, and uh, I had no expectation for how you would answer it, but I think that that might have been one of the most powerful moments I've had in this, uh, as of yet, early, but I've still done a couple of these. I've done about, I think you're six or seven. Uh, that is really fascinating for me. Um, and so I know that's the weirdest note to end a podcast on, but that's this is my podcast. I get to be weird. Um, <laughs> And uh, I will give you a chance if you want to add anything. Um, some guests have said, like, you know, something they learned about themselves or something today. Whatever you want, if there's anything you want to add. Um, I, I really respect that answer, and I think that that's getting to the heart of why I started this podcast is things like that, issues like that. So anything you want to add, Alex? Nothing to add. This, uh, this was great. I, it's one of those things where you don't realize how much you've been thinking about something until it starts coming out of your mouth. <laughs> that's well said. Cool. Well, it's weird. You made my heart lift and then it got heavy and then it got heavier and then it lifted again. So it's been a kind of a weird ride for me, but, um, I would have expected nothing less than what we just went through. Um, <laughs> but again, thank you so much for volunteering your time to do this. And thank you for being as honest as you were. I know that it's difficult to be honest in about things that, you know, are so serious. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm glad we did this. This was good. Cool. Awesome. Well, everybody, uh, this has been another episode of Coffin Talk Exit Interviews with the Living. Thank you again to Alex for putting another nail in the coffin. My name is Mike Oppenheim, and as always, we'll see you soon. Walking alone.